Hi, and welcome to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In this episode, we'll be sharing a recording of a panel event called The Intersectional Lives of Transgender Adoptees, which was held online on April the 26th, organized by also known as under the leadership of Mike Mullen. In possibly the first ever panel of its kind, Ryan, alongside Pauline Park, Jin Jang, Andy Mara, and Min Matson, talk about what it's like being trans and a transracial adoptee, including grappling with the current resurgence of anti-Asian racism and anti-trans legislation, navigating search and reunion with Korean family, names, and more. Also known as, founded in 1996, is an adoptee-run organization based in the New York metro area. They provide educational programs, facilitate community building activities, and work hard to elevate the voices of adult adoptees. This event was also video recorded, and you can watch it on YouTube. Please see our episode notes or social media posts for links. We hope this panel contributes to broader conversations and hope to see more events like this one in the near future. We also thank Mike Mullen and also known as for this important initiative and for letting us share this conversation with you all today. My name is Mike Mullen. I'm the current president of Also Known As. Also Known As is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. We are a group for international adoptees based in New York City. And most of our events have always been in New York City. But because of the pandemic, we've had this opportunity to reach a much more global audience, which is which is really great for our 20th anniversary because we want to celebrate the international aspect, uh, global aspect of our community, and also uh, hear directly from people who may not be able to join us in New York. So I think today's event is a great example of one of the things that we can do. We have uh, people joining us from Australia, possibly in the audience. We have people joining us from other countries as well, and obviously all around the United States. And, you know, I think one of the key things that also known as feels is very important is we want to hear the diversity of voices in our community. And today, as far as I know, is the first transgender inter-country adoptee panel that has ever happened. And so I'm really happy that we can host this. And we have a tremendous set of panelists here. And I'm really happy and excited to hear what they have to say. So um, without any further ado, I will turn this over to our facilitator, who is joining us from San Francisco, Min Matson. Uh, Min is a transgender Korean adoptee residing in San Francisco. Uh, he's been active in advancing visibility of LGBTQ plus communities within adoptee communities and is excited to be here. Uh, he's facilitated several panels that reach across intersectional identities, serves on the board for Transgender Law Center, and most importantly, is the father of an adopted seven-year-old. Thank you, Min. Thanks, Mike. Uh, good evening, afternoon, morning um, to all of you, depending on where you're coming here from. Uh, again, my name is Min Matson, and I'm really excited to have an opportunity to be the facilitator for today's discussion. Uh, I'm especially excited to get a chance to highlight um, the voices of our incredible panelists, Jen, Ryan, Pauline, and Andy, and um, want to thank you for creating space um, and for inviting me to be a part of it. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to review just a couple of kind of um, asks or um, requests. Um, so this is going to be a facilitated discussion throughout that's going to highlight specific experiences from our panelists through a facilitated Q&A dialogue. Um, and uh, we will have a Q&A at the end for participants. 
Um, but please feel free to put your questions in the chat as we go along. Without uh, further ado, um, I wanna go ahead and get our introductions to the panelists kicked off. So I'm gonna start off and just ask Ryan um, if you can introduce yourself. Sure, um, my name is Ryan and I'm joining you all from unceded Wurundjeri land, uh, also known as Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm a Korean adoptee born in Masan, South Gyeongsang province. Uh, I'm non-binary and I use they, them, and he, him pronouns. Uh, I've been exploring my gender expression and identity actively now for about four years. Uh, I'm a researcher and a writer based at the University of Melbourne. Um, I also produce two podcasts, Adopted Feels, with my friend and fellow Korean-Australian adoptee, Hannah Crisp, uh, and a trans oral history podcast I run with another good friend called the Call Me By My Name Project. Uh, so thanks to Mike and AK in New York for hosting this event and for having me. Thank you so much, Ryan. Great to have you here. And um, before I go any further, I did just want to mention that we have Annie and um, Carolyn joining us as well um, to provide ASL interpretation today. Apologies for not introducing that up front. And huge thank you to you both for taking the time to do so. So uh, Jin, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Jin and I'm a transgender Asian adoptee from China. Um, I'm non-binary and I use they, them, he, him pronouns. Um, I'm located in Minnesota and I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I feel like I don't have much to say as I'm fairly new to the community, but, uh, and forgive me if I seem a little nervous. All good, thank you so much for being here, Jen. Um, Andy. Hey everyone, my name is Andy Mara and my pronouns are she and her. Uh, my Korean name is Hong Hyunjin and I was born in uh, Gyeonggi-do, Gwangju, um, but grew up in upstate New York in a little town called Bethlehem. Uh, and I, in my day job, I'm the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. We are a national legal advocacy organization uh, committed to advancing uh, full legal and lived equality for trans and non-binary people here in the States. Um, and uh, fun fact, I'm not sure if Michael is aware of this or not, um, but um, a few of us, including Min, Pauline, and I, I think it was the three of us, um, and a few others spoke on a more broader LGBTQ plus panel um, that was convened by also known as back in 2010 at their 15 year anniversary. Um, so it's, um, it's very good to be back um, and to be sharing space with you all. Thank you so much, Andy. It is a fun fact and uh, fun fact also that that was the first, uh, first time an LGBTQ session had been accepted into uh, Korean adoptee uh, conference space. So was really excited to have a chance to do that. Um, and uh, Pauline, uh, can you introduce yourself? Uh, Pauline Park, I use feminine pronouns. Uh, I was born in Korea, adopted when I was seven and a half months old, uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, moved to New York, 1995, uh, transitioned, uh, came out as an openly transgendered woman, uh, in 1997, when I moved uh, to uh, Jackson Heights in Western Queens um, and co-founded Queens Pride House at that time, the LGBT Community Center uh, for the Borough of Queens, 
Uh, I've served as coordinator of the Transgender Support Group at Pride House since February 2011, co-founded Niagara, the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, in June uh, 1998, and uh, have been chair of Niagara uh, for the last several years. And I'm absolutely delighted to share this panel with you all. Uh, it's amazing to think that was 11 years ago that Min, Andy, and I were in the same room uh, talking about these uh, very important issues. And if this is, in fact, the first transgender intercountry adoptee panel or public forum in history, then we are actually making history. So thanks to also known as, and especially to Mike Mullen for spearheading this effort. Thank you so much, Pauline. Um, so to get us started today, um, I would be remiss not to acknowledge um, the uh, all the visibility and um, unfortunate acts of um, anti-Asian violence that's been happening um, globally, but certainly that we're experiencing um, an intensification of here locally in the US. Um, so, you know, I wanna start off with you, Andy, um, to see if you can talk a little bit about um, how you're thinking about um, the anti-Asian violence and, and what how that's coming through, the, the role that being adopted plays and how we're thinking about anti-Asian violence and um, the work that you're doing um, around education and how we um, move forward through everything that's happening. That's a great question. Um, it's a heavy question um, to kick us off on this panel, but um, uh, I think that for adoptees, particularly Asian American adoptees, in the moment that we're in, it's 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 a tough time. And I think, you know, in light of this panel acknowledging the intersectionality of identities amongst adoptees who are not just, you know born and raised in another country, but also acknowledging our gender identity and our gender expression and how all of those things come into play, especially here in the States. Um, I think for, for folks like myself who are trans or queer and also adopted, um, particularly from the Asian American experience, it's we're getting hammered on a number of fronts. I mean, you look at the surge in anti-Asian American and Pacific Islander violence across the country, particularly um, with regards to women and elders being targeted. This is a moment of crisis in our community. And I think that what's, what's been really, really troubling and also really, really exciting is that it took the deaths of, trans, of these folks, um, particularly in Atlanta and also incidents in New York, the Bay, and everywhere in between the country to, to see our country develop their racial analysis around how Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders fit um, within this larger framework around racial justice and, and racial equity in this country. For, I think, trans folks in this country, it's a particularly hard time. Um, this year, there's been a record number of anti-trans bills that have popped up in state legislatures across the country. We've seen almost 100. I think we're at close to 100 in over 30 states where particularly trans young people are being targeted specifically where we're seeing legislatures criminalize gender affirming care for trans young people, or we're seeing bills um, being designed to ban trans young people from school athletics or, um, or facilities that would correspond with their gender identity. And in some cases, both. Um, I think the latest and the greatest was Arkansas, 
in the passage of their bill, the governor vetoed it, but the legislature came back and over, um, overrode that veto. And so if you look at all of the things that are happening in the states right now, it is a moment of reckoning for folks that hold not just one, but multiple identities. And I think for folks, um, especially in this room, for adoptees, what's been particularly, um, I think, real is that not only have we had to have conversations about gender identity, being trans, coming out, what does it mean to live openly and authentically in a country that still vilifies our existence, but also to have like real and honest conversations about racial identity and what it means to not just be an Asian American, but also to be an Asian American in predominantly white families. And where, and where do our families fit within that conversation? So I think there's a lot to unpack and digest in the moment that we're in, but I also think it's really exciting to see that there has been such this out, such an outpouring of a response in our communities, both in the trans community, the adoptee community, the broader Asian American and Pacific Islander community, to see this advancement of discussions and analysis about our identities and where we fit within these broader movements. Yeah, thank you so much for the call outs to, I mean, the amount of anti-trans legislation is just astounding. And um, during a time when there is, um, you know, it's just, a, a, like you said, a mounting blow to particularly those of us who sit at those intersections of trans identities and Asian identities. Um, and, you know, as we think about the toll it takes personally, um, you know, it, we also know that there is um, a lot of complications that it has professionally. Um, Jin, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about um, how that manifests for you and ways that you've navigated that professionally and anything else you want to share about kind of sitting at those intersections in the professional world. Um, yeah, so I don't know what to say much about, I'm sorry, <laughs> could you repeat the question? Just um, how kind of sitting at those intersections of identity within your workplace um, and kind of how that plays out for you professionally. Because um, I know that that's an area that you've been sort of focused on is just at work. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, at work, I know that it's very different having these kinds of parts of my identity. Um, I struggle with anxiety and depression. And there are often times if I wonder if it's because of genetics or because of the environment that I was raised in. And while it's most likely a combination of the two, um, I think it would have been better if I had not been raised in predominantly Caucasian or heteronormative community. But um, it's, it's just one of those things that kind of weighs on you and changes how you interact with the people around you in professional settings. Um, and it is just one of those things that um, plays a big part of your character. Yeah, absolutely. I experienced that as well as, you know, in the workplace you struggle with. Um, um, and I often will say when people ask, how are you doing? They don't, you know, it's rare that they really want to know how you're doing when you're in a workplace environment. So, yeah, I think that can be really challenging. Ryan, I think it's an area that you've um, done some, so had some conversations um, about as well as just how, how we take what's happening and how that manifests in all the different facets of our lives. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective? Sorry, with regard to work or? Um, how it manifests personally and professionally um, and anything you wanted to add about the embodiment of you know, challenges um, from 
legislation, knowing that you're not located here in the U.S., if you have a perspective to share on that as well. Um, yeah, I guess I'll start by, by saying that I think it's really important to frame this discussion in the midst of um, these really, really terrifying um, st structural systems within which we're all living, um, and um, especially in the U.S. context. So, um, yeah, thank you to Andy and as well to Min for for framing um, the discussion today uh, along those terms. Um, if I can speak perhaps a bit more personally, um, I yeah. So I think because I've identified as queer for quite a long time since my late teens, um, I think I was quite used to feeling like an outsider and having to navigate marginality in quite a lot of spaces. And so by the time that I started to explore what being adopted means and also explore my gender expression and identity, um, I think I was quite accustomed to that feeling <laughs> um, of navigating that sort of outsiderness. Um, and I think in a, in a kind of roundabout way, having a queer identity for quite a long time actually helped me, um, kind of strengthened, strengthened me or maybe made me more used to um, having to sort of seek out those spaces myself, having to reach out to people for support, um, understanding the importance of building partnerships and community with the people around me. Um, and yeah, I think... I'm, I'm rambling, but I think um, spaces such like this is, is super important because there are very, very few spaces where all those sort of multiple dimensions of my experience um, can kind of just be out there and be completely legitimate and valid. Um, and that can, uh, and a space where I suppose I can be in company with people that perhaps resonate with my experience a little bit more, say. Than, than when I'm just in those individual communities that oftentimes don't have much overlaps. Yeah, absolutely. And it is hard to find those spaces for, you know, what some might think are very specific intersectional identities. But when we get into spaces like this, it feels like it doesn't feel that specific. There's a number of us. So, um, you know, it's a great opportunity for us to um, uplift um, and amplify the stories that you all are bringing. So thanks for that. To shift gears just a little bit, um, Pauline, I know you've done a lot of work um, kind of examining parallels between trans, uh, transgender and adoptive identities. Um, and I'd love um, for you to share a little bit more about how we can think about those parallels today and, um, and, and uh, information that you think would be important for our audience to know about. Well, I think uh, being a transgender community adoptee, I feel in some ways, that I was born to have an identity complex. Uh, and it took me really, I'd say 36 years to be rather precise about it, to come to terms with all my various identities. Um, when I was in graduate school, I just finished my PhD and I uh, decided to take uh, sit in on a pro seminar on political theory. And uh, one of the theorists, theorists that we read was Michel Foucault. And reading Foucault really brought about a moment of epiphany for me uh, because I realized that I'd been labeling, uh, laboring under uh, false dichotomies, binary oppositions with regard to my various identities really all my life. And that with regard, for example, to my uh, 
my transgender identity, I'd been thinking in terms of, you know, real woman versus fake woman. And similarly, with regard to my queen adoptee identity, I'd been thinking in terms of real Korean versus fake Korean. And uh, what I came to see, it really uh, became clear to me that there was, uh, while there are some significant differences between gender identity and racial, ethnic, or national identity, there's some really interesting and important parallels too. And that in both cases, I had recognized the binary opposition that was at the root of my misunderstanding my own identity. So for example, with regard to my transgender identity, the sex-gender binary, which artificially and arbitrarily divides the world into male, female, masculine, and feminine, um, and that assigns people rather arbitrarily on the basis of really external genitalia at birth to one sex and one gender. And that with regard to my identity as a Korean adoptee, uh, I came to realize that I had a, uh, an, an identity uh, and set of experiences that were just as valid as Koreans growing up in Korea or Korean Americans who were growing up in uh, Korean American families here in the United States. Um, just as my identity as a transgendered woman was just as uh, valid as and legitimate as the, identi the identity as a woman that those assigned to the female sex at birth had. And so the parallel for me was seeing that in both cases, as I said, I'd been laboring under uh, uh, under binary oppositions that were false dichotomies. And once I uh, had that breakthrough, I could see that my identity was in fact perfectly valid and legitimate, um, both as an openly transgendered woman and as a Korean adoptee. That's, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Pauline. And, you know, I see that it really resonates so much with our audience as well. I think you put it very beautifully when you said born to have an identity crisis. I think that was very well stated and I appreciate, um, I appreciate that. Um, so just to stay on kind of the topic of identity, um, you know, Jen, I know you've thought a bit about what it feels like to kind of have the identity crisis within Asian communities as an adoptee. And then, you know, you sort of layer on other parts of that. Can you say a little bit more about trying to fit into Asian cultures or, or maybe not trying to fit in, but rather knowing that you're on the outside of Asian cultures, um, Asian, Asian counterparts, um, as well as then kind of the complexity of being trans and non-binary. Uh, yeah. So it's, I kind of like walking a tightrope, just trying to navigate life, knowing that you have these parts of yourself that are different from status, quote unquote, normal. And it's like, I know that I have an interest in Asian cultures, but the idea that I should have an interest because of where I was born, the changes how I feel about it sometimes um but because there have been times where I have talked to uh people from Asian countries and they have told me that I have 
that I'm not of the race that I was born. And that has like definitely been a blow to my self-esteem. And I think it really is just navigating the world as you want to see it. And I forgive me if I have trouble speaking. It's, uh, I'm very, very nervous. No worries. You're doing great. You're doing great. And I think that that really resonates, um, you know, for me too, of being told you're not Korean or you're not, you know, fill in the blank or you must be this. Um, I understand that. So you mentioned kind of that feeling of um, being on, you know, feeling, having that blow to your self-esteem through that. Um, was that how how have you looked to reconcile back to uh, sort of heal the wounds that things like that take? It's definitely been a journey. I know that one of the things is that I have been talking to counselors for many years. And one of the biggest things that I've learned throughout uh, just self-reflection and looking within myself, I've learned that it really doesn't matter what people think and the people whose opinions you should value are people who are close to you, like family and friends and people who know your worth and people who you value. As we think about um, continuing on the path of identity, um, Ryan, um, as a you know, being on, in Australia, um, I'm I'm I think our audience would be interested to know kind of how some of these things take shape for you in Australia, and if there's if there's a difference um, in how your identity, um, you know, the, those intersections of your identity and how that intersects with your social life and others around you, um, and the role that that plays for you. That's a that's a really good question. Um, I guess I'd start by um, saying that, um, you know, Australia has, and I'm very fortunate um, that Australia has trans healthcare. Um, that is, as long as you're, um, as long as, as you have citizenship, which is obviously, of course, a privilege, um, you know, you do get subsidized HRT or hormone replacement therapy. Um, you know, the, the clinic that I go for trans healthcare is completely free because it's subsidized. Um, so there are many privileges and forms of legal and social recognition that exist here. Um, despite that though, um, I think a survey in only 2020 found that among um, trans and gender diverse youth, the rate of attempted suicide is shocking. Um, in, even in a country with good reasonably good trans healthcare. I think it was something like one in two. Um, and so I think that also really helps put into perspective that there are so many forms of inclusion um, that need to be fought for, um, irregardless of say formal entitlements, which are of course important, but um, there's, you know, inclusion really needs to be a groundswell, right? Um, and in some ways it it's tied to legal issues, but also, is more than that. Um, so I would say that. I would also say that um, that the Australian adoptee community is smaller than it is in the States and smaller than it would be in Scandinavian countries. Um, and I'm speaking for, for Korean adoptee communities um, more specifically here. I'm not sure what it is like for other inner country adoptee communities. Um, 
And so, yeah, in that sense, I often find that having an adoptee identity or speaking about adoption, because I also do research on adoption, um, can sometimes feel quite, uh, <laughs> quite isolating. Um, and also, uh, I think people are like, oh, that's such an interesting research topic, but most people don't really, really know much about it. Although they'll often pull me aside later and say, well, I know someone that adopted or I know someone that someone, you know, so there's always that, um, which I think is interesting in itself. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, if, if that kind of gives a bit of context. My, my other, uh, the other thing I should say is that I actually spent quite a few years of my teen and uh, during my teenage um, period in Korea. So I lived in Korea for three and a half years. Um, I went to a uh, foreign school there. Um, so I moved to Australia when I was an adult. Um, I moved here for university. Um, and that was quite an adjustment to, to, to move to a place where one, I could understand what everyone was saying for the first time in my life. And second, um, you know, I went from being part of a racial and ethnic majority to being definitely part of the minority and that brought its own issues too. So, um, mm. yeah, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. I think I've been talking enough. That's great. Thank you for that perspective. And Andy, I know that, um, so one of the things that Jin talked about also, and that Ryan, you were just talking about was the journey through identity. Um, and if you think about, you know, kind of going back to what Pauline called out is those sort of dual, if not more, multiple journeys that go on through identity. I know that you've done a lot of work in that journey. Um, and I will just broadly say, can you share some of the things that um, have been most uh, profound for you in your journey, both um, your adoptee journey and your trans journey? Yeah. So um, uh, in 2010, uh, I went back to Korea for the very first time in my life. Um, and uh, in a very unexpected turn of events, I um, was reunited with my family in Korea. And uh, also unexpectedly ended up coming out to my family in Korea as trans. Um, and uh, being in relationship with my, with my family in Korea has been... <laughs> it has been an, an incredibly transformative experience over the past 10 or 11 years that we've been in relationship. Um, we have a pretty close relationship. I, I talk to my mom probably once or twice a week at this point um, in my relationship. And um, it's been interesting, you know, if I were to like to zoom out and to look at my experience of what that relationship was initially characterized by. I think, you know, in the very beginning, my mom in particular um, was deeply concerned about making sure that I felt loved and accepted um, in our family, um, regardless of my gender identity. She um, inevitably became the person that took on the role of coming out on my behalf. So she was my surrogate coming out person. Um, and uh, she, one by one, spoke to each family member. And, uh, you know, in, in many Korean families, there's first cousins and second cousins and third cousins. And so there was a lot of, there were a lot of conversations that occurred. Um, but the, the, the relationship kind of shifted. And I think it, it shifted in a way that, um, you know, I look at kind of the present moment that I'm in and we're all in 
And we've, well, my, you know, my transness is not a big deal anymore in my family. Um, being Asian American in the States right now is. And when the COVID pandemic hit, my mom uh, was deeply concerned about the infection rates um, and the exposure. And it shifted from being concerned about the pandemic to being deathly afraid for my safety um, in light of the violence um, and the increasing violence that we've seen. And so um, it's been... (laughs) It's been an interesting evolution in the relationship, um, but uh, it's something that I'm very, very grateful for. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Andy. Um, And I know uh, your journey has been one that's been, uh, our, our first panel was just shortly after um, you you initially re- first uh, connected with your Korean family, so um, it's been really great to get a chance to kind of hear ongoing how that connection has gone um, and the level of engagement that they've been able to have as a part of your journey here. Um, and continuing on the lines of talking about kind of biological origins, um, I know um, that Ryan, you've also um, spent some time kind of thinking about or researching into, certainly through your research, um, the, the different views, different views, opinions, and, um, you know, personal choices um, for people in connecting with their biological origins. Can you talk a little bit about your research and then personal experience? Um, sure. Well, my research isn't actually on connecting with, with Korean family. Um, it's, uh, it's on more like questions of subject, uh, adoptee subjectivity, um, which I don't have, to t- don't have to talk about, happy to talk about later if people want. Um, but on, on the topic of, of birth family or Korean family um, searching, um, uh, I, because I know that's something that we had all talked about that we might uh, mention uh, in today's panel. So I guess I'll share on that. Um, so uh, yeah, I think of course it's it's uh, up to the adoptee whether or not they want to search. Um, obviously, that's and and you know like to make a to make a strange parallel here. Um, you know, I think it's up to every trans person to decide how and what that looks like for them, um, whether or not they want HRT or not. Like there is no right way to do any of this. Um, so. Um, yeah, so just with that caveat, um, I did decide to search. Um, and when I when I started searching, I hadn't started transitioning. Um, it took, I think, two and a half years to find my Korean mother. By that point, when I first made contact with her, um, I had been on testosterone for about six months. Um, so that brought uh, a lot of anxiety as well as a lot of joy, like for me personally, because I loved you know, the journey that I was on. But the longer I was on the journey of transitioning, the more I felt like, well, maybe finding her and meeting her and having a relationship with her is just going to become more and more of a distant possibility. Sometimes it felt like that would be impossible. Um, So I think that was one particularly acute time in my life where being adopted and being trans was really sort of highlighted and spotlighted as creating maybe a Um, making an already complicated situation a little bit more complicated. Um, And so, you know, even deciding like 
what photos to send her, what she might expect me to look like. Um, and then being so scared that if she were to find out that she would call off the meeting or she'd just walk in the room and then walk right back out. So I think it, it added additional stress. Um, and yeah, I think there were definitely difficult times. Um, but at the same time, I, I kind of love and think it's important that I should be allowed to explore these things in my own time. And if they're going to happen at the same time, why not? Right. It's, it's my decision. Um, so yeah. Well stated. And I think it is so true. It is such a personal decision. Um, I think, um, people just assume that when you're adopted, you want to, uh, conduct these searches. And I think it's, um, I've experienced that in multiple ways. And it's something where when people say that they're, they don't want to do it, um, that people, I think, just are baffled by that. And I agree. I think it's such a personal decision and everybody gets to make that decision on their own. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's so important to think about all the implications that it has for individuals. Um, Pauline, I know you've done um, a lot of connecting back um, to Korea as well and with um, either in research or um, otherwise. And, um, you know, as you say, have thought about that biological or origin for you, um, what has moved you to do, to kind of make those connections? What has moved you to understand and where are you at today with that? Well, I'd say uh, one or two things. One of the things that strikes me as another parallel between my transgender identity and my Korean adoptee identity is that both in the, in the Korean adoptee community, the dominant discourse seems to focus on what people call birth search, right? Almost obsessively. Um, just like with regard to transgender identity, people focus uh, almost obsessively, non-trans people in particular, focus on almost obsessively on medical transition. When in fact, our lives are much more complicated and I think richer and more interesting than just that one aspect of our identity, whether it be uh, searching for Korean family as Korean adoptees uh, or uh, pursuing medical interventions, hormone surgery, etc., as trans people. And I think what we have to realize is that in both cases, particularly with regard to uh, medical interventions, these are very recent phenomena. Uh, when I was uh, in grad school at the University of Illinois, I came. I was doing some research uh, not at all related to LGBT issues, and I came across the Encyclopedia of Homosexuality, which is a huge 11-volume encyclopedia published by Garland many years ago. It's now out of print. Um, and volume 11 out of the 11 volume series was on Asia and the Pacific. And I was really uh, quite astonished to discover uh, quite a bit of information about Asia and Korea in particular with regard to people that we might think of as LGBT. Um, several years later, I developed a presentation that's on my website uh, to talk about these pre-modern identities in Asia and the Pacific region, I came up with the term proto-transgendral because to use the term transgender with regard to people in the pre-modern era is in effect to impose an identity formation or construction that we use uh, in an era in which they did not use that terminology. So uh, I 
developed this presentation, which I've given several times now, on homoerotic and proto-transgenderal traditions and identities in pre-modern Asian and Pacific Islander societies, which sounds like a dissertation topic, uh, very academic, but it has very real world implications. Because I think, first of all, as LGBT queer APIs, and perhaps as transgender queen adoptees in particular, we are, to use the French phrase, déraciné. We are in many ways uprooted or derooted uh, from our origins. And there's a hidden history, to use a Foucauldian term, of queer APIs, to use that terminology, contemporary terminology, that goes back millennia, really, almost to prehistory, of people whose identities and practices anticipated contemporary LGBT people. This is a history that very, very few people know. Uh, very few queer APIs know. Um, most contemporary Asians and Asian Americans are not very aware of it. And yet it's important not only for an understanding of where we came from, but a recognition of the fact that the identities that we think of as modern, even Western, even specifically North American, have precursors going back centuries and millennia. Um, as I like to say, it's not just to use Queer Nation slogan, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. But we have been here, we have been queer for three or 4,000 years, and you were used to it, you just forgot. And I think, finally, I'd add that um, when we acquaint ourselves with that history, the point of it is not to simply cast ourselves as modern day uh, Huarang or Hidra or Mudang or whatever, but to say that we have a place in our communities and cultures of origin. Uh, in effect, to reinsert ourselves in the governing discourses and narratives of our communities of origin and our cultures of origin, precisely because homophobic and transphobic forces in those communities and in Asian Pacific Islander societies today are trying to other us as LGBT queer folk as foreign to our own native cultures by insisting that LGBT identities are entirely foreign to those cultures, even though clearly, as I point out in this uh, presentation, which I'll uh, link to in the, in the chat box, uh, there were distinct forms of homoerotic and proto-transgender practices and identities in pre-modern Korea in every Asian and Pacific Islander society. Thanks, Pauline. Um, a, lot, a lot to, I mean, your work in this space has been <laughs> really robust and always enlightening to hear about. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and Jin, I wanted to go over to you to talk a little bit about um, anything you've done on kind of that biological origins and um, what that might mean to you, whether, it, you know, whatever your decisions have been in there and what your, what your, your uh, journey and kind of uh, individual process has been in considering your biological origins. Um, thank you. Uh, I haven't really, you know, considered searching for my birth family. Uh, it's definitely 
come up within my life whenever I've introduced myself as an Asian adoptee. One of the first questions people ask me, you know, are you in touch with your birth family? And I always have, I always have to pause before I decide how to respond to that. And most of the time it is, I don't want to be indifferent or I don't want to sound coarse when I say that I have no interest in searching for my birth family. Um, but it's definitely been a bit of a journey as um, I started tea in October of last year and I recently came out to my family and that has been a journey in itself. Um, and it's been a very interesting journey. Yeah. And I, I know that making those decisions to even start tea, I mean, that I know I, I started and then I stopped and then I started again. I mean, all of those, all of those decisions are, are loaded decisions. Um, so I still appreciate that very much so. Um, so I wanted to just um, take a moment before we go in, before we start our Q&A um, session um, to just see, um, ask each of the panelists if there are um, other components of the intersection, intersections of um, being an trans, trans and transculturally adopted um, adoptee um, of that identity, sitting at that intersection, um, specific um, um, I guess, highlights or um, key components of your journey that you want to highlight uh, before we go into some of our Q&A. And I'll just open it up um, and, and see if anybody wants to chime in. And if not, then I will start on our Q&A. All right. Then I'm going to kick us off on our Q&A. Um, I know some people are really good about like the uh, pauses for, um, for suspense sake. I am not good at that. Uh, I tend to be like a, if you don't hit that button fast, then we're moving on. So, um, but if something comes up for you where you're reminded, like you wanted to make sure to share this thing, please do feel free to, to stop me and ask to share that thing. I'm in. Um, yeah. We might've had one person, uh, Jesse, who was in the crowd, who uh, I think might, might've wanted to give a little uh, chat, but I don't know if Jesse, if you're, if you're still around. Thank you. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, I didn't have any specific questions. I was just saying this is really great. Um, and I really appreciate it as a starting point. Um, you know, having Korean and Chinese adoptees. Um, I myself am a Columbia to US adoptee and a trans man. And I know at least like four or five other Colombian US adoptee um, trans men and um, trans folks um, that are um, adopted transracially domestically or from other countries. Um, so I really, really appreciate what you guys are doing. And like, I hope like in the future, maybe we can expand it. You all can expand it a little more, but um, this has been great hearing. There's definitely lots and lots of um, overlap and, you know, common experiences. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining. Um, so just starting, I'm going to start us off using um, questions from the chat. And then um, as I asked before, please do feel free to put your hand emoji up if there, if there is something specific, if you would like to interact directly with the panel. Um, so my first question um, is um, for anybody who has changed their name uh, from, their, from their adoptive name, how did being an adoptee play into choosing your current name? And did having a birth name or other name given by officials before adoption affect what name you chose? 
so I thought my story would be a little a bit interesting because um, my adoptive name that my adoptive parents gave me was very feminine. And I did not know about my, um, I don't know if you would call it my birth name, but uh, the name that the orphanage gave me, I did not know about it until my 21st birthday when my parents gave me a stamp with the characters for my birth name. And I didn't know what that said. So I had a friend from, uh, I believe, Mongolia translate it for me. And they were, and I chose that as my new name. And I thought because it was very gender neutral, it fit me very well. And I enjoy using it to this day. I love that. That's a great story. Thank you. Anybody else want to share a little bit about their um, name process? Well, I'll just mention that when I transitioned, uh, it was, I had to think about what name to use, obviously. And I couldn't actually use my Korean birth name, my uh, first name, because it actually was specifically male identifying. And uh, so uh, it would have been uh, very strange to use, but I did decide to use my Korean family name, both to, so to speak, reclaim my heritage, but also to reconstruct my own identity uh, in a way that felt empowering. And uh, even though I have no information about Korean birth family, and even though I'm not absolutely certain that the name on my Korean visa and Korean records was given to me by birth family or simply by um, hospital personnel or someone in an orphanage. Uh, it's the only Korean name that I uh, have any connection to. And so that's why I decided to use um, my Korean family name uh, after I transitioned. Thanks for sharing that, Pauline. Ryan or Andy, do you wanna weigh in on this question? Uh, sure. Um, so, names <laughs> names are complicated um, for a number of reasons. But I think for for adoptees, it's there's lots of questions of how do we incorporate our racial or ethnic identities within our names. For trans people, how do we legally change our names or not legally change our names, but have names that honor and recognize our authentic selves? So on top of the legal um, legal nature of changing your name. For myself, um, I discovered that uh, the adoption agency had named me um, um, and that the name in my file and that I grew up believing to be my name was not my name. Um, and in fact, my records were um, somewhat falsified by the agency. Um, when I reunited with my family in Korea, um, I had an opportunity to meet my Chin Harabuji or my, um, my grandfather on my father's side. And as an elder, and, I, and as a still standing practice in Korean culture, elders in families name children, grandparents name children. And um, my grandfather, ended up giving me a Korean name uh, 
that was masculine identified. So this was before I had come out to my to my family in Korea. And so um, my mom took it upon herself um, in her uh, in her usual fashion uh, to uh, course correct and to give me a feminine name. And uh, in in recognition of, I think, the journey around names. And when I legally transitioned um, by changing my name, um, I made the compromise for myself about how can I honor both of my identities by incorporating um, my Korean surname, Hong, um, into as my middle name. Um, so um, my government name, as I like to say, is uh, Andrea Hong Mara. Um, and, you know, my partner, who is also a Korean adoptee, um, we are planning our a wedding and we have talked about like, what names do we use? And I'm like, look, I've been through the name change process a number of ways and I'm going to keep my name and, um, and honor and honor the, the identities that are, that are behind it. That's right. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Um, and especially going through the marriage process. Um, I know names are a conversation regardless of, of your background. So I know that that's a whole conversation and I see a, a lot of congrats to you, Andy, on your upcoming wedding um, and coming through on the chat. Um, and I know panelists, even after I just prepped everybody to say, I don't like to say just blanketly, let's all answer this question. I know that I'm still blanketly asking everybody this question on the names because I do think it's an interesting question. So. Ryan, anything you want to add to the conversation about names? Yeah, I guess I, I uh, also found out that my, um, my Korean name, which has been my legal middle name, because my adoptive parents decided to keep Lee as my middle name, um, I also came to understand that um, I was named by the agency or orphanage. Um, so that also, I don't know changed a little bit of my feelings about it. Um, and also they named me after my birth father or the name of my birth father on my file. Um, and I think, look, I was a bit rushed into changing my name to Ryan because I was going in, basically I was going into a teaching semester and I was like, I don't want to do this in the middle of semester and have to explain this to students. Let's just run with Ryan and see how it goes. Um, and, uh, I'm the kind of person that I think like needs deadlines or like needs things to push me because I'm quite indecisive. Um, so anyways, um, so I picked Ryan and then I ended up changing my name legally to Ryan. Um, I think in the future, if I were to change my name again, um, I would consider using my um, Korean mother's last name instead of the name of my birth father on the file. Um, and interestingly, when I... Um, when I met my Korean mother, I learned that she too had changed her name um, because she'd gone to a fortune teller and the fortune teller had said, you'll have better luck with this one. Um, so, I mean, I have no idea what my Korean mother thinks about me or about our meeting, but I felt like that was a neat kind of parallel between both of our experiences. And that's something that, um, yeah, I just, I just like to kind of have as part of that, uh, part of that story and part of my experience too. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, let me move on to the next question. A question for, and, and um, Jen, I'll ask you to answer 
if you happen to know this answer, I know that there are questions about whether or not gender neutral pronouns exist in birth in the countries of origin that each of you are from. So um, I don't know the answer to that. So I'll ask um, uh, anybody who knows, Jin, do you happen to know for um, if there are gender neutral pronouns in Chinese? Unfortunately, I do not. <laughs> um, well, and, if I could comment on that, here's an interesting fact. I, I uh, wrote a little blog post about this. Uh, Chinese actually does have a gender neutral pronoun, but Chinese society has been for millennia extremely patriarchal. And so while gender neutral pronouns are useful and really important for people who identify as gender non-binary or gender queer, um, the fact is the mere presence of a gender neutral pronoun doesn't guarantee social acceptance of gender neutral or non-binary people as uh, the case of China would show. And interestingly enough, even though Korean uh, is a more gendered language in many ways than Chinese, Korea was actually a matrilineal society uh, before 1392, when a Neo-Confucian revolution led from the top by the first king of the new dynasty, the Yi or uh, Joseon dynasty, uh, reorganized Korean society along Chinese lines, which meant really imposing a rigid patriarchy uh, where it had not previously existed. Um, so one of the important things to recognize is that while linguistic innovations such as neutral, uh, gender neutral pronouns are important and useful, uh, they alone will not transform a society. Uh, it requires much more than that. Uh, I'll add one other really interesting little footnote, which is that our pronoun they, uh, our pronouns they, them, theirs, which a lot of genderqueer folk use, were not original to the English language. <laughs> they were actually introduced uh, in the early Middle Ages for a variety of reasons. If you want to know the story, read David Crystal's book um, on the history of the English language, which goes into this in detail. It's a fascinating story. And even though the introduction of they, them, theirs actually had nothing to do with trans people, as far as I know, <laughs> um, it shows that linguistic innovation is not new to our society. It's not invention, an invention of the 20th century. And in fact, use of they, by the way, as a, as a singular, has been in, uh, in use in the English language since at least Shakespeare's time. So those who think that using they to indicate the singular as opposed to the plural is some PC innovation of the last 20 years are actually quite wrong because it goes back at least 400 years in the history of the English language. Uh, so when we look at language, it ends up being more interesting, more complicated, more revealing than most people realize. That's great. 
Thanks for that, that historic context, Pauline. That's super helpful. And I see a couple of uh, requests in the chat um, for the, uh, the book that you just recommended. Um, so if you can put that in the chat, I think folks will find that helpful. Will do. Thanks, Pauline. Um, so uh, I wanna move on to our next question, which is um, around uh, how you've reconciled um, some of you know what may have or may not have, but um, some of the internalized um, shame that many adoptees feel uh, growing up of just sort of that, like there's something just off about me. And then stepping it, you know, taking that sort of internalized shame um, and adding layers that may have or may not be for some um, have been an internalized transphobia or homophobia um, added to all of the other complexities of trying to identify, understand your complex identities. Um, what has been, um, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of moments from that journey of reconciling that shame that you would want to call out? Um, uh, Ryan, I'll, I'll direct that to you. If there's anything from kind of that journey that you would want to call out um, as being, um, you know, just personal pieces from that journey and or um, advice to others who are working on reconciling those things for themselves. Um, that's a really good question and a very difficult one. Um, oh, um, look, I'm no expert. <laughs> uh, okay, so I will just say, I guess, I don't know. I think it's it's challenging and it's complex and it's constantly changing and shifting and dynamic. Um, I think that uh, in some ways, um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, having a queer identity as kind of being quite helpful uh, in some capacity. I think part of the reason why it was quite helpful is because there's an established language around being LGBTIQ+. Um, at least when I was younger, not much of an established language around being trans, at least in the context that I was growing up in. Um, but there wasn't really the same language for adoptees. Um, I don't know if there is now, um, but it just wasn't part of the lexicon, wasn't really part of the sort of even some cultural understanding that I was exposed to as a young person. So um, I think normalization of different identities and different life experiences is a, is a huge one. I think representation is a huge thing. Um, but I would also say that I feel like I don't have things worked out. I feel like I'm still figuring it out and um, drawing on sources of support where I can, understanding more about other people's experiences to better understand my own. Um, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's ongoing. Yeah, and Andy, I know you've sort of confronted those, um, you know, those journeys um, with, you know, with meeting your Korean mother, Korean Korean mom, and all of those things. Um, and while I sure I know that it's an ongoing journey, is just sort of reconciling how you come to terms with all those things. I imagine that having to articulate them to somebody, you know, like a Korean parent, um, is uh, forces you to sort of reflect on them. Um, anything you can share from those reflections? Um, around uh, uh, Yeah, kind of the internalized, um, you know, the internalized transphobia, homophobia, all of those things coupled with, you know, whatever other complex internalized shames we might grow up with um, for being adoptees. So yeah, I think just to start in kind of tr tracing and mapping out 
these journeys and these experiences, what's important to know. I think before I even thought of actively going to Korea, um, let alone having a rare opportunity to search for my family, I think what's important to know is that we exist. And that our, I think that Pauline said it very, very eloquently early on that we've always existed and our, our identities are valid. I really, as I've gotten older, I've really, and I'm not old, but I'm, I'm certainly older now. And I, I just, I really reject this notion that we don't belong, that are somehow that we hold these identities that are just not intersectional or connected. And I think a lot of it has to do with internalized racism and racism that we experience in the world and also um, internalized transphobia <laughs> and transphobia that we experience in the world. And the, the beautiful thing that I think that I've witnessed actually since that conversation we had in 2010 is that we are starting to connect the dots and find each other. And we are, we are leaving um, real memories, ex artifacts, tangible things that name our experiences. A friend of mine, Mia Mingus, who is a queer Korean adoptee, lives in the Bay. She talks about leaving evidence behind. And, you know, this panel and the work that, you know, Ryan has done on, with his podcast and the work that Pauline has done, this is the evidence that we're leaving behind. So that way we can trace our, our lineages, so to speak. Um, so I want to I wanna lift that up. For, for my, my family and I, I think what's been uh, really interesting for me is that there was never any shame from my family, my mother in particular, my mother in Korea about who I am. And in kind of peeling back the story a little bit, I searched for my family when I had not medically transitioned. And there were a couple of reasons behind that. And one of them was, and whether this was bananas or otherwise, I didn't want to medically transition until I found my family, whether that was a, a real prospect or not, because you know, very for very similar reasons that Ryan named, I was I was frightened of the experience of rejection. Um, so that's, there's one that that's one layer. But um, when I found my family and came out to them, my mother just hadn't. There was no shame or rejection in her words, her actions. And um, there was a point in my, in one of our outings together where, you know, at the time for myself, I wasn't presenting as female um, with my family in Korea. I wanted to give them time and space, but we were out eating at a restaurant that my family frequent, I guess, frequenced frequences often. And my mom introduced me to the waitress, a friend of hers, as her daughter. And I look at that, I look at that moment and kind of how our relationship has blossomed. And she, my mom has been at every step of my journey as a trans person. Um, she, 
um, literally. And when I've had, you know, transition related surgery, um, my mom always called me to check in, like literally while I was in the hospital recovering, she was calling me to check in and see how I was doing. I think what's heartbreaking for me on the, on the other side of the coin around being adopted, and this is something that I've been grappling with as of late, is that my mom feels very guilty about the circumstances behind my relinquishment. And the, the really terrible um, reality is that my mom did not consent to me being sent to the States. Um, that was a decision that was made by someone else and she had no agency in it. And she, despite that reality, um, she feels an immense amount of regret and guilt and shame, despite the fact that she did not make that decision. That was a non-consensual choice. And in the present, with where we're at in the world right now, um, and I think especially living in the States and anti-Asian American and Pacific Islander violence being on the rise, you know, the, the news is getting around. Um, you look at, or if you watch Korean media, or Korean news, um, which I do every now and then, like the stories are going back to the motherland. And when my mom asked me these questions about like, are you okay? Are you being careful? Are you and Drew okay? Um, you know, I've been very honest in saying like, this country is like rooted in white supremacy and racism and blah, 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 I, I go down the list. And what I did not realize though, in those comments, in making those comments that it only further shames my mother. My mother feels even more guilt and shame because there is nothing that she can do. Mm. And it's been a really hard um, experience to hold and to juggle because while my mom's feelings are valid for you know all her reasons, I as her daughter um, know that it's not her fault and it's not her responsibility. And there's a lot of other things attached to those experiences. Um, so, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Andy. Um, I want to shift gears and go to an uh, audience question. So, um, and I hope I'm saying your name right, Annika. I'm going to um, take you off mute in a moment, um, but you have your hand up um, and I think have a question. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Annika. I use she, her pronouns. There's probably a lot more of an intro I could give, but I'll end it there. Um, this is um, kind of for Pauline, but if anyone else wants to uh, answer this as well, it's, um, I'm going to read my question. Um, I want to ask, what do you think about the accessibility to the concepts in academia that offer communities language to understand their historical marginalization? And I can type it too, if you want me to. Yeah, I, I heard the question. Thanks, Annika. It's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things is being a former academic um, myself, uh, a lot of the uh, academic writing around uh, gender or just generally is really uh, obtuse and inaccessible to non-academics. And frankly, I think some of that is deliberate. Um, when I write, I try to communicate to a general audience. 
um, a lot of university press books and academic uh, peer-reviewed journal articles are written for small audiences. And so it's the fashion, frankly, to write in what ends up reading almost like a foreign language. Uh, it's certainly not uh, conversational English that we uh, speak in. Um, so I think accessibility is a really important issue. At the same time, some of these concepts um, and histories are complex, so it does require using certain terminology that aren't necessarily um, colloquial uh, in order to get at uh, these histories. Um, and so I think it's a balancing act. I think we have to try our best to make all of this information and history accessible to a general audience, including uh, those who are uh, who have lived experience as Korean adoptees, transgender, uh, any marginalized community. Uh, and when it comes to um, both sets of issues, really, a lot of it is written in language that's not accessible. So that is a serious problem. <clears throat> but as I say, at the same time, uh, we have to uh, recognize that there are more technical terms sometimes that have to be thrown into the mix in order to fully explain um, and unearth uh, these uh, hidden histories. So it's a great question, and I agree with the thrust of what you're saying. Um, it's something that I always strive to do to make my own writing accessible to everyone, even while uh, including some terminology that might not be familiar to people. I hope that answers your question, Annika. Thanks, Pauline. Thanks, Annika. Um, and we have time if anybody else has a question, um, please do feel free to put your hand up. We've got probably time for one more question um, and I will wait to see if a hand goes up while asking um, my uh, asking one other question. Um, Jen, you talked a little bit about your journey um, in sort of the reconciling your identities and being able to find acceptance and rebuild esteem. Um, part of our last question was focused on how, how to overcome some of that internalized transphobia, homophobia. Um, can you say a little bit about that for yourself, kind of what you've done to, to combat the internalized transphobia, homophobia um, that you've had um, in your life and, and as you've come out? Um. I don't know uh, how to phrase it other than a lot of hyping myself up, I guess, in a way. Um, it took a long time to meet the right kind of people who I made connections with or um, vibed with in a way um, and people who really supported me. Um, it is, it is a lot of, uh, just kind of building up that self-esteem yourself, but other, but having a good group of people that you know love you unconditionally really makes that journey much easier. And I think knowing how to communicate with those people and finding common ground really helps. Uh, I think one of the biggest things is that knowing that these people support me so much has made that journey so much easier. 
totally agree with what you said. I mean, it is about how you do kind of ha have to hype yourself up, whether it's, um, you know, just those private moments with yourself to tell yourself that you are okay and that you are smart enough to be sitting at that table, whatever it is, um, to those deeper conversations with yourself to um, talk yourself off that ledge sometimes. So I totally, completely agree and understand. Um, so I don't see any other hands up. So um, what I am gonna do um, is a couple of quick things. I do just wanna share that folks um, are welcome to stay on the Zoom after this session ends. We'll wrap this session up in the next five minutes. Um, but before we go, um, I just wanna have um, everybody, um, each of our panelists share kind of a call to action, something that each of you as participants and audience members can be thinking about of what happens after this um, and what can you do to continue these conversations forward. Um, so I'm just gonna start off with Andy. So I, um, few things rapid fire, um, find your statewide LGBTQ plus organization and reach out to support them, especially as many uh, statewide organizations are right now battling really, really bad anti-trans bills. Um, I would be remiss to not say that. So please reach out to your statewide organization. If you don't know who your statewide organization is, go to the equalityfederation.org um, and there's a listing um, of organizations um, by state. So that's number one. Um, number two is uh, I would say find, a, for a lot of parents, I think there's a lot of parents um, attending today's panel, um, which is really, really exciting um, to see so many parents curious and, and interested and committed to supporting their, their children, um, both who are adopted and also trans. Um, I would say be proactive and in finding um, resources to weave in to how you talk about um, issues related to race and gender. Um, there, you know, I thought the comment by Jesse was really, really poignant um, around how there are more examples of folks like us out in the world that are thriving, that are doing incredible stuff. Um, I can already name, like, like rattle off some names like um, Sasha at the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, who's their director of membership and is a black trans um, man, mixed race, adopted. Um, there's Rafi Friedman Gerspin, the former um, assistant director at the White House on LGBTQ plus engagement. There's Precious Davis, black trans woman, also adopted, is coming out with a memoir in, um, I believe, June or July. Like These are all folks in the broader community that we can point to. And I would say for parents, look for those, all of those examples and find a way to weave it into um, the experiences that you are you are making accessible to your children as they grow up. I wish I had those examples when I was growing up. Um, I think I would have been less um, nervous about being more um, open and joyful about my identities um, that I hold. And uh, lastly, I would say um, thank you um, to AKA. Uh, for making this space once again um, for conversations that our community has not had and that um, I hope to see future conversations occur in our community um, that further tease back 
um, the rich complex complexities that make that make our community beautiful and valid. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Pauline, um, what's your call to action? I'd like to mention two things, uh, one transgender related, the other adoption related. Uh, there are bills pending in state legislatures, particularly in the New York State Legislature that would decriminalize sex work. This is really important for the transgender community because the police often assume that trans women are engaged in sex work even if they're not, uh, if they uh, read them, perceive them to be transgendered. And so Assemblymember Ron Kim, who's the first and only Korean in the New York State Assembly, has introduced a bill uh, that is pending in the State Assembly, which I'd encourage anyone in the state of New York to support. Um, it's New York uh, A849, A849, and I'll put a reference in the chat. Um, with regard to uh, and there, I'm sure there are uh, similar bills pending in other state legislatures. Um, with regard to adoption, there is an important adoption rights bill that is uh, pending in Congress uh, that would extend citizenship to uh, adoptees whose parents, for whatever reason, neglected to follow through on naturalization. And uh, that act, uh, that bill uh, is pending in Congress. Uh, supporters are looking for support from members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it should be regarded as a nonpartisan uh, act and it should be supported by anyone who supports rights for adoptees. Uh, some of whom, not a large number, but not a small number, are actually undocumented immigrants, even though their adoptions were legal because their parents, for whatever reason, neglected to follow through on naturalization, which is not automatic when you adopt children uh, from other countries. So I strongly encourage everyone to contact their members of Congress to support that legislation as well. Great. Thank you so much, Pauline. Great calls to action. Um, Jin, uh, what's your call to action? Uh, I don't have much to say other than um, find people who support you. Uh, I know it's really hard to socialize right now, but I would, you know, support finding uh, like-minded people and um, be somebody who you needed when you were younger. I love that. Thank you. And Ryan? Yeah, I don't have much to add to what everyone else has said. Um, yeah, I think just reach out and check in on one another. Um, keep conversations going, get involved in your local organizations, um, stay curious, stay interested. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks thanks again for uh, to all the panelists and organizers and interpreters as well. And thanks to all the audience members for, for um, uh, participating um, and coming today. Thanks, Ryan. Um, so with that, I want to thank everybody, um, all the participants today, the 125 or so that were here. I know we're, we've lost a few folks as we've hit the top of the hour. Um, a huge, huge thank you to the um, panelists. All of your stories are amazing, and I'm glad we had an opportunity to really center your voices. And a huge thank you to the ASL, ASL interpreters um, for all of your great work during this call as well. 
Um, and then um, a big thank you to, to AKA. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Mike. Thank you, everybody. Uh, that was incredibly informative for myself. And, uh, you know, we actually hit over 150 people. I didn't want to say anything to the panelists because I didn't want to make anybody nervous. But uh, that's really incredible. Everybody coming from Zoom calls all day, and now they have volunteered their time. To, they wanted to hear what you had to say. And, um, and I really want to, you know, obviously, I think, Min, thank you for a wonderful job facilitating and the ASL interpreters. Thank you for staying on top of the ball. But uh, I really want to shout out to the panelists here. And, you know, you coming on here, you don't have to share your stories right in public like this. This is like the most personal stories that you could say. And I, I want to say how much I appreciate it. Um, and I know the audience really appreciates your bravery. And I could just really feel, uh, you know, the bravery that you've had to show really all your lives. And this is just really another example. And I, and I really, uh, I really uh, admire you for that. And thank you for continuing to do that. And I wanted you to know that it is having an impact. Um, this event would not have happened if I hadn't, you know, been talking to Pauline over all these years and just having, you know, conversations with, with her. And um, Ryan's podcast was really a big factor and really opened up my mind. So, I mean, there's your, your voice is getting out there. And so this is just, you know, hopefully this is a beginning of another conversation. And hopefully we'll have more events like this. And um, I also want you to know that uh, hope, I'm hoping that, I see, you know, in the chat, people are connecting with each other. And, and uh, one thing I asked, like, Pauline, the beginning was, hey, is there like a Facebook group for inter-country adoptee transgender people? And she said, well, I, not that I know of, but maybe now there will be one. So and I'm hoping your community is also getting stronger uh, as we go along. So thanks, everybody. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.